Okay, well, interview mode on. Here we go. Hello, and welcome back to the Metropolitan Culture Corner. I really never get tired of saying that. This is our 30th episode. Woohoo! Can you believe it? We started this project back in March 2020, and time has just flown by. I get the opportunity to speak to some of the most interesting people in our beautiful city of Barcelona. And so I wanted to take a moment to say thank you to our stellar lineup of special guests who have been with us over the past 30 months. It has been an honor and a pleasure. Of course, I also want to say thank you to Barcelona Metropolitan, who said yes when I proposed this collaboration to them and who support the local art and culture scene in all kinds of ways. Also, I want to say thanks to you guys who continue to follow our adventures month after month. We don't know what we would do without you. This month, we sit down with journalist, author, creative consultant, activist, feminist, and so much more, Dr. Angels Bronsoms. Over the years, she has done so much. She has worked as a correspondent for magazines such as Popular Uno, one of the most historic rock magazines in all of Spain, Fitnix Magazine, a technology magazine, as well as for newspapers El País y La Vanguardia. She has worked as a program director and DJ for Catalonia Radio, as an anchor for David Tres, and recently as a freelance reporter for Radio Cuatro, where she offered an intersectional perspective on women in the entertainment industry from the Iberian Peninsula. She speaks several languages and has also worked as a translator in various contexts, including for Greenpeace in Latin America and the Caribbean, and even for the great Quincy Jones when he was on tour here in Spain. Angels is the founder of Genuine Hints, a consultancy agency for the arts and media industry, and she is currently an advisor on gender representation for SMUC, the Escola Superior de Musica de Catalunya. Angels is taught as an associate professor of writing for media at the Global Business School and media professor for the Universitat Autónoma de Barcelona. In all her free time, she is a voiceover artist and a sought after public speaker, a published author of both books and academic articles. The main focus of her research these days is the history of women in music and feminist musicology. Angela's approach to everything that she does is rock and roll and proudly feminist. Titles of her books include How Women Negotiated Identity and Maternity in Punk and Rock and Roll Animals. She has always had an eye towards the future while continuing to appreciate as well as critically examine the past. How's that for a resume? Please welcome Angela's Bronsons to the Metropolitan Culture Corner. We all have a mission, you know, and it's it's wonderful. Right now I'm 61, I think, God, how fantastic. The last year I got my PhD and I read about punk like you cannot believe. I read hundreds of books and something that is so inspiring. And I feel really, really lucky and very privileged, actually, that I still engage with those subjects and I can do something about it. And this is activism. Hola, hello. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me. The punk rock philosophy has such an important place in your work. What first drew you to the world of punk music and what did it mean to you growing up? Well, I think that was the tribe that represented me and specifically because the women in that tribe were empowered. They were resilient and they were driving changes, you know, in a society that was starting to look at feminism in another way. You just the traditional feminist, but the modern feminists. What's the difference between traditional feminism and modern feminism? Up until then, I was in my early 20s, 1980. So the few female references that I've seen, they weren't people that I wanted to model after, you know, they weren't great references. But the references that I saw on the punk scene, the women in the punk movement, they were very much what I was looking into 
not even just look because the physical aspect was something very important, what you represent and how do you present yourself to society. But also, as I said, the ideology, you know, it's like the no future ideology at the time. There was a big crisis worldwide. Young people were struggling to find a future. So I think that was the new feminism. People, they were fighting against gender stereotypes and creating a new space in society. And that was here or was that in the U.S.? Because I know you spent some time in California in the 80s yeah. doing everything from what I understand from driving limousines to helping out on Hollywood sets to writing right. magazines, all kinds of things. No, definitely the first time I connected with the punk scene was in my trips to London. London was for us in Spain like the promised land. It was easy to get there. The music industry was booming. There were lots of record stores, Virgin Megastore. As a DJ, as I was working on the radio station, to me it was necessary to go there to get new music and to go to all the concerts because one of the fabulous things back then was that it was very democratized. Any little town, any neighborhood had a bar, a concert hall where you could see all the new bands. And it was amazing that New Musical Express was publishing all these lists with hundreds and hundreds of concerts that you would be highlighting, you know, it's like, oh, God, I have 10 tonight. How do I do that? So London was really happening. It was booming in the fashion sense, the music, the music industry, the independent labels. And then I was tired of being in Barcelona, waiting for the bands that I liked. They came from the West Coast back then. And so I was making money. I was working on radio and television. I was a DJ. And it's like the best thing you could do is to travel to the places where the music music you like came from and that was Los Angeles, California and it was also the center of the music industry and once you see that scene you don't want to come back you know the weather was wonderful there was a rock magazine called Popular Uno they sent me as a correspondent basically and they arranged all the paperwork and I was able to get a visa as a journalist and then the rest is history <laughs> Both London and Hollywood or Los Angeles in general, how did your time in these places shape your perspective on how journalism was tied into underground culture and not just pop culture? Right, the mainstream culture. Well, again, Los Angeles was also a very good seat for all these new tribes, new bands, you know, like the punk culture was established there by bands very representative like X, for example, or the Blasters. There were hundreds of bands there at the time. And there was no gender discrimination. Certainly, I looked very androgynous, you know, <laughs> at the time. But yeah, I had my press pass and I could go to all the concerts every single night of my time there and report for the magazine. And yes, the record industry there, the main record companies like AM Records or Polydor, whatever, all the companies that would call the representatives of each country, in my case, Spain, and they would send you the press releases of their artists and so you were invited to be there as part of those selected group and of course when they send you to cover a heavy metal band you are not interested but if they send you to cover Neil Young then probably you want to do that you know it depended mostly of my criteria I was more interested in the alternative scene you know definitely so your autonomy as a journalist in some ways really informed the information that people here received about the scene back then it's funny because we were discussing that the other day back then we didn't have 
had any archives. Every time you had to write an article, it was based on your own experience. Because if you are traveling, you don't carry files with you, you don't carry magazines. You have to know about Neil Young. Otherwise, interview people who know Neil Young in order to write this article. And that's how journalism was back then, you know, basically based on your own sources and your culture. Getting to go to these concerts as a correspondent, meaning you can go free, sounds perfect. Some people would get into journalism just for that reason, but I know from knowing about your career that you take your responsibility as a journalist seriously. So how did being a music fan lead you to become a correspondent in the first place? Basically, you would call the clubs and you say, could you put my name on the list? And they would say, who are you? I was a journalist. It was not a, a game, you know, and I wrote also for La Vanguardia, for El País, when I was living there. So when I had big interviews, like Herb Alpert, he was the owner of AM Records. That interview was portrayed in La Vanguardia as one of the main stories. Each character, each artist was played in the right section depending on the editor's criteria. Sounds like it was a really amazing time to be in Los Angeles. So why did you end up coming back to Barcelona? It was a lot of fun. I had a big motorcycle. I would go to my concerts with no helmet back then, you know, it was fabulous. And then I, I don't know, it's just destiny probably. I met a woman from Madrid and we started traveling to Mexico and by the time we came back to Los Angeles things go pretty fast you know it's like six months later all the news have changed all the bands have changed so you lost track immediately of the actualidad you know so I came back because also was the time when the Olympics happened in Barcelona mm -hmm. and actually I was supplying an apartment of my friend Moncho Algora who was the director of of the festival that just started about art and technology, Art Futura. And so I came to Barcelona and it was very revealing because technology was starting to happen. That was 1989. And I was hired basically to do the PR and press for that festival. And at that festival, we invited Brian Eno, Laurie Anderson, John Paul Jones, Timothy Leary, and all these totems, you know. So it was a good time coming back to Barcelona. Then I started to work for the Olympics that happened in 1992. But then after the Olympics, I returned back to the U.S. and I went to San Francisco, where the digital revolution was starting in 1993. And then I was working as a correspondent for El País as a technology writer. So I switched music for technology <laughs> so you came from the punk scene and the music scene and then you ended up writing all of, of these really interesting pieces on technology so what was the connection for you and how does it continue to be important basically 1993 the new culture the digital revolution was happening and it was so interesting you know like probably i was detached from the music scene from all these years in spain and coming back and i started to study at the san francisco state university i met my first husband then my second husband then i become a mother and so there are times when you need a little rest something like that the technology is more restful than the music scene then you also got into the academic world and whether we're talking people in that world, people in the technology world, people in the music world, California, Catalonia. Are there a couple of specific names of people that really, really impacted you or influenced how you see what you do in terms of your professional life? The punk attitude and everything that relates to that is attractive, you know. I remember interviewing people from the technology business and with my ex-husband we created this CD that won an award and a technology and design award and I remember interviewing 
interviewing survival research laboratories. They were these guys that were putting together those installations with explosions. And so it was pretty punky too, you know? <laughs> so some of the, the people, for example, the directors of the Wire magazine, Jane Metcalf, the people from special effects in movies and all that was also very modern and very happening. And also as a foreigner living in California, of course I had a work permit back in the late 90s, but there weren't many, many jobs. Well, I worked for Greenpeace then too, so I had that part of consciousness about the planet and all that. I don't know how to define it, but it's a mix of all these influences. So whether we're talking about the music and entertainment industry or about journalism or about Spain or about the U.S., and all the things you mentioned, sustainability, feminism, technology, gender identity, all these topics that have always been part of your work and concerns for you, now they all seem to be topics of conversation in the international media all the time. So how do you feel like we're doing on those topics after the 30 years that you've spent in the world of media? Well, I think it evolves. They're evolving at their own time. We cannot go faster than that. But I'm pleased to see that there are some evolution, you know, specifically in young females, that they are no longer serving the patriarchy. It's a revolution, I think. My own daughters, I see that no longer people are accommodated to these very false structures, you know, power. The society and this androcentric society is slowly changing. And I think it will be a day when 200 years from now, <laughs> when we probably see this equality, but I'm confident that it's going to happen sooner. It's my hope. I read in an interview with you, another interview with you, that you said you wanted to live to be 132. So maybe. We'll... Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm hoping. Yeah. Well, the Radio Cuatro program that you presented as a part of your doctoral research, Where Are the Women in Music? And speaking of the world in transition that we're experiencing, I mean, what conclusions did you draw from all the stories you heard from all these different women? What's the state of the Spanish entertainment industry, the press? Do you think things have changed? I think that there's something that we never thought that was going to happen, which is the pandemic. And I remember after that experience, after that research with these women, I wrote another article, academic article about what happened with culture after the pandemic and it was awful what happened for many women because they were striving to survive most artists as you know but also has revealed that tools like the do-it-yourself tools that we were using back in the 80s do-it-yourself culture has come back everyone is producing their own music not everyone but it's more common to how to produce your music to create your own media you know digital media everything is online so in a way we have progressed to have more independence in that sense and these women most most of the women that I interview, the very intersectional research, they all had to accommodate to the new demands of this after-pandemic society, and I think it was positive in a way. Even though they suffered a lot during those months, afterwards, something new has been created or can be used for a better success. You mean in terms of the music industry in general, or do you mean in terms of women in the industry? or both? No, I'm talking about particularly 
especially in those cases like women that basically produce themselves, independent artists mostly. I'm not familiar of how the music industry, the mainstream industry is working today because I see success stories like Rosalia, but those are like big companies, Universal, but small companies, I think they are also doing a good job trying to empower new voices and giving opportunities to women. I see Altafonte, for example, is one of those record companies that they're working towards that equality. Just out of curiosity, why did you decide to get a doctorate and write a thesis about these particular topics? Because you are already reporting on these topics, writing books about it, writing articles. So why decide to really research it more in depth? Well, in a way, you know, demonstrating that the gatekeepers of the music industry have been really discriminatory and their practices were totally visibilizing the work of thousands of women, hundreds of thousands of women in music history. I think it was necessary in a way. To me, leaving Spain it was a frustration that I had in working in the media here. And that frustration was transmitted into an opportunity moving away from this country, searching for new opportunities, new life in California, changing my career, you know. Right now, what moves me is the activism, activism towards try to vindicate this invisibility of women in the music and the lack of gender representations in all sectors of the music industry and fight to change that is what moves me now. What kind of advice would you tell someone who's maybe in her 20s and who comes to you and says, I'm really trying to find my way professionally and creatively here in Barcelona? What should I do? Well, it's interesting because just yesterday I was trying to present a map of educational resources, musical educational resources with gender perspective for women that's starting looking for these opportunities. And I wrote a list of 25 people and places that can be relevant for someone that is looking for that perspective from universities to fanzines to associations, all sorts of resources, thinking that this could be very helpful for young women trying to start a career in music. I need to keep it a little bit secret because this is my new project that I'm thinking on presenting for the radio and for, for the Generalitat also because there's some institutions supporting the work of women working with feminism and specifically in our field in music. And now that we have all these departments of feminismos and equality and all that, let's do something about it. So now I'm moving towards that direction. So that's your big project coming up this next year is a project to kind of provide a way for women to tap into a network. Yeah, yeah. Today I was listening on someone at the radio saying, don't hesitate, you know, and any project you have, transmute it into a digital thing. Move it on, send it out and use technologies to spread it, you know. I'm in that mood right now. People say if you put yourself out there, more opportunities will come. Has that been the case for you? I think that we need to change mentalities, you know, and this doesn't happen overnight. How are you going to empower new generations if you keep reading the same history under patriarchal views? It's like if you read the story of music and there are no women, the story of philosophy, there are no women. So this has to be changed and the only way to change it is through education. Change the books, change the concert bills and those changes have to be done. Right now it's very important. I took recently a course in feminism 
Japanese musicology, and that part triggered my interest in knowing how far women in musicology and feminism have reached today, you know. So that project, I put together a project for a SMOOC, trying to find relevant women in academia in the specific fields of music and see how it's progressing. And it was interesting taking that course on feminist musicology because I didn't know how was in the 15th century, families had daughters and they put them in a convent. And the first daughter had to become a nun, but becoming a nun, it was quite boring. And most of them, they learned to play instruments. So the 15th century, 16th, 17th, 18th, this is a history that I didn't know. And now I'm shocked to learn about. I'm looking also into the most contemporary history, but there's something back there. It's interesting. It's interesting to know all the feminist theories about creativity, the theories on aesthetics, the women in dance, for example. We don't know nothing about women in dance, women and music education. Those are subjects that we need to update and to transmit. And that's why education is so crucial right now, so we can spread all this information into future generations. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this interview with me. Muchas gracias. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andres, for being our guest on this special 30th edition of Metropolitan Culture Corner. Those of you out there watching and listening, don't forget that we bring you a brand new behind the scenes interview on the first Monday of every month. So if there's an artist, a chef, a writer, an inventor, a director, a photographer, an activist, a professor, a designer, a musician, a poet, or any other creative individual that comes to mind who you would love to see on the Metropolitan Culture Corner, leave us a comment down below or write us a message via our social media, Twitter, Facebook. Okay, okay. See you next month. And in the meantime, keep supporting art and culture.